So we're in Luke 23, and actually I'm going to read, thank you so much, Kate. Um, We're going to read actually just, I'm going to read from the beginning, just to pick up the story, although already Simon has preached on the first few verses. So let's read from Luke 23, verse 1. Um, sorry, these verses, the first few verses are not up on the screen, but they, they kick in, I think, uh, a little, in a little bit. Uh, when the whole assembly rose and led them, him off to Pilate, and they began to accuse him, saying, We have found this man subverting our nation. He opposes paying, payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be Christ, a king. So Pilate asked Jesus, Are you the king of the Jews? Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. Then Pilate announced to the chief priests and the crowd, I find no basis for a charge against this man. But they insisted. He stirs up the people all over Judea by his teaching. He started in Galilee. He's come all the way here. On hearing this, Pilate asked if the man was a Galilean. When he learnt that Jesus was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus... He was greatly pleased because for a long time he'd been wanting to see him. From what he'd heard about him, he hoped to see him perform some miracle. He plied him with many questions, but Jesus gave him no answer. The chief priests and the teachers of the law were standing there vehemently accusing him. Then Herod and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked him. Dressing him in in an elegant robe, they sent him back to Pilate. That day, Herod and Pilate became friends. Before this, they had been enemies. Pilate called together the chief priests, the rulers, and the people, and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was inciting the people to rebellion. I've examined him in your presence and have found no basis for your charges against him. Neither has Herod, for he sent him back to us. As you can see, he has done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I will punish him and then release him. With one voice, they cried out, Away with this man! Release Barabbas to us! Barabbas had been thrown into prison for an insurrection in the city and for murder. Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to them again, but they kept shouting, Crucify him! Crucify him! For the third time, he spoke to them, Why? What crime has this man committed? I found in him no grounds for death, the death penalty. Therefore, I will have him punished and then release him. But with loud shouts, they insistently demanded that he be crucified, and their shouts prevailed. So Pilate decided to grant their demand. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, the one that asked, they asked for, and surrendered Jesus to their will. On uh, Thursday of this week, I had to go to London um, to visit the Queen, no, to visit somebody. I had a, a meeting uh, with a leader up there. And after I had uh, been there, I decided, well, I'm in London now. Uh, I'll just have a, a bit of a walk. And I ended up at Speaker's Corner in Hyde Park. I don't know if any of you have ever been to Speaker's Corner in Hyde Park. Um, I first went there, or the only other time I went there, was when my dad took me there in 1980, uh, when we first moved to England. And my dad wanted me to see one of the fundamental values that people have in England, which in our country, which is freedom of speech. 
It all started at the Tyburn Gallows, which were around the corner from Hyde Park, where uh, through the centuries, people had been hung. Uh, and before they met their, faith, uh, their dreadful fate, uh, they were allowed to give one final speech. And of course, knowing that they were about to die, and therefore it didn't really matter what they said, they uh, would uh, protest their innocence, or they would rail against the authorities, or they would say whatever they wanted to say. And uh, that tradition carried on, and uh, in the 1800s, a reform group rioted in the Hyde Park, in the corner of Hyde Park, demanding the right to have reform and to have their say and to make their case unhindered. And the authorities, uh, Walpole and others, eventually gave in to their demands and the right was established there in Speaker's Corner at Hyde Park that people might stand up and say whatever they wanted to say on whatever topic they wanted to say to whoever would listen. And so to this day, especially on Sundays, people will stand on soapboxes in Hyde Park Corner and uh, speak to the hundreds, even thousands of people who will gather to listen to their views, their ideological, political, religious or any views that they wish to express. And hecklers will uh, play their part as well, and that indeed draws, helps a speaker, if there's a heckler, to draw the crowds in and to have a dialogue, a, a Socratic conversation. And uh, so it's become a big tradition. Uh, but I wonder, and as I stood there on Thursday, I wondered whether we in our country have lost our understanding of uh, freedom of speech. And I wonder whether as Christians we have given in to cowardice rather than being courageous in speaking up for the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Words have power. Words are powerful. We find in this passage in chapter 23 and verse 5 that Jesus had stirred up Judea by his teaching. And he'd started in Galilee, and he'd now ended up in Jerusalem, and it was his words that had got him into trouble. And people wanted to silence him. And the rulers and the people and, the, and Pilate and Herod were all involved in a war of words. In this passage we've read, we see that there are people shouting one thing, shouting another, and it's words that kind of influence the direction of the whole narrative and end up with Jesus being condemned to be crucified. But notice this, that the fact that Jesus had spoken over the uh, last few uh, couple of years does not mean that uh, he held back from speaking the truth. The fact that he was going to uh, end up uh, being crucified did not put him off from speaking the whole truth, even though it had terrible consequences for him. He was willing to stand up and to speak up. I think the passage back in chapter 22 and uh, verse um, 67 particularly kind of uh, is the nail in the coffin for Jesus, where there uh, he's standing before the elders and the, the chief priests 
and teachers of the law. And they say, if you are the Christ, tell us. And Jesus said, if I tell you, you won't believe me. Um, But then he says, from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. And they said, so are you the Son of God? And he replied, you are right in saying, I am. And then they said, why do we need any more testimony? We've heard it from his own lips. He has spoken from his own lips courageously. And of course, that's it. They say, that's enough. But it didn't stop Jesus from speaking. Intriguingly, there is one moment when Jesus does stop speaking. In chapter 23 and verse 9, we see that Jesus is standing before Herod, the Tetrarch of Galilee. Herod is quizzing Jesus and interrogating him. And we find, it says here in verse 9, that Jesus gave him no answer. Herod is, I'm going to call him frivolous Herod, okay? Uh, Herod was the one who had, uh, against his own conscience, but under the pressure, under pressure from his daughter at a party, had, uh, had John the Baptist beheaded. And uh, Herod's conscience had been kind of ruined by that. And uh, here we find that Herod kind of is pleased to see Jesus because he's hoping that Jesus will do a bit of magic for him. He wants to see Jesus do a miracle. But really, he's not interested in being educated by Jesus. He just wants to be entertained by Jesus. He's not interested in the truth. He just wants some spectacular fireworks, something to impress him, to be entertained. But he's not a seeker of the truth. And we find here that uh, Jesus refuses to speak to him. Um, You know, today we might say there are people, perhaps Christians even, or people who think, well, I like the band, I like the entertainment of church, I like the good friends, I like the good vibes, but I I don't want to get too serious, really, about it. In fact, Herod ends up mocking Jesus. It tells us that they put a royal robe on Jesus here, a shining garment upon him, probably one of Herod's old robes, placed upon Jesus here. And then they mock him and they ridicule him. They laugh at him. And so Herod really isn't interested in really knowing the true Jesus and being a follower. He uh, just wants to have a bit of a laugh and enjoy a bit of a spectacle. And the scary thing is that Jesus refuses to speak to him. It's the only time that we see it here. But it is a scary thing when God says, okay, you've made up your mind. I don't think I need to say or can say anything more to you. It's a scary thing uh, when God stops speaking to us when our consciences have become so seared that we cannot hear the truth. And God says, well, I'll, I'll hand you over that to that then. It's a sad, sad thing. But that's the only time. At every other point, Jesus speaks, and he speaks the whole truth and nothing but the truth. Folks, I want to encourage us to be those who will stand up, who will speak up, who will speak out for the truth. 
are we like fearful Peter? Fearful Peter, who do you remember, was intimidated just a few uh, chapters earlier where he was in the courtyard and the servant girls were kind of um, um, uh, speaking to him and he was terrified. He was intimidated into silence, into denying Jesus. Or are we going to be like the Peter who, after Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, is inspired, not intimidated, by the Spirit, and he's told not to speak anymore in Jesus' name. And do you remember, sorry, in Acts chapter 4, verse 19, Peter says then, having been filled with the Spirit, judge for yourselves whether we should obey God or man. Um, we, we cannot help but speak about what we have seen and heard. We're going to be like him. as We're going to pick up on the word we had earlier, that encouragement for us to proclaim him and to speak the good news about him. Now, of course, when we speak to people, we want to do it with love. We want to do it with respect. But surely that very love should compel us to want to tell the truth which sets people free to want to invite people to an alpha, to want to tell people around us about him because it is that truth that ultimately can set people free. But I want to notice something else in this passage, and that is this. Jesus appears to be being thrown around from pillar to post in this narrative, doesn't he? It's a little bit like a ping-pong game. He's kind of a political football in this narrative. As I say, like a game of ping pong. He goes from Pilate, he goes to Herod, then he goes back to Pilate, and then Pilate tries to ping him off into the people, and the people ping him back to Pilate and say, no, we want you to crucify him. And Pilate says, no, no, over to you guys, come on, release him, and they ping him back. It's kind of like Jesus is this ping-pong ball at the mercy of these powerful forces, these loud voices pushing this way, pushing that way. Jesus seems to be out of control. He seems to be at the mercy of circumstances that are going on around him. There's, po- there's politics. There's an emotionally charged environment. There are different voices. There are different motives. It's a maelstrom around him. And you think, Is Jesus in control of this situation? And I think what Luke wants us to see is that absolutely there's only one person who is in control of this situation. Jesus is not the victim of forces beyond his control. Instead, he stands serenely as master over this whole thing. The timing is his. The details are his. The agenda is his. The plan is his. He is in control. Tells us at the end that they, Pilate eventually surrendered Jesus to the will of the people. But what people don't realize is that actually it's Jesus' will and it's God's will that is actually prevailing in the midst of of this storm. Pilate wants to release Jesus. He tries to do it three times. Um, What has happened is this. Pilate, first of all, uh, tries Jesus or or speaks to him. 
And then he hears that Jesus comes from Galilee. And uh, they're thinking, the crowd are thinking, well, this will, this will in, uh, intimidate Jesus or implicate Jesus because troublemakers come from Galilee. Uh, and uh, immediately Pilate thinks, oh, Galilee, that means that, wait, Herod's jurisdiction is Galilee. He's Tetrarch there. So actually Herod could try him. I'll pass the buck to Herod's. Herod can deal with this problematic situation. And so he hands him over to Herod. And of course, Herod eventually has sloping shoulders as well. Although Herod can see that Jesus is innocent, nevertheless, he's afraid of the people. He hasn't got the courage of his own convictions. He, he passes him back to Pilate. And then, of course, Pilate three times in verse 4, verse 16, and verse 22 tries to have Jesus released, but the crowds won't have it. And so we see then that actually, despite all of this, Jesus is in complete control. Amidst the chorus, the cries to be crucified, the decaying consciences of Pilate and Herod, Christ stands above it all. It's a bit like when Jesus was in the boat, do you remember? And there was a storm and the disciples felt that they were drowning being thrown this way thrown that way water coming in it's all overwhelming it's it's just a terrible situation help and Jesus is sleeping and then when he wakes he calmly commands the storm to stop and all is still you of little faith he says to his disciples you know I'm in control what about us when we face uncertainty, when we feel thrown about, when we feel out of control of situations, when we're concerned about our health, about our family, about our job, about money, about global warming, about all sorts of things, wars, everything that's going on around. What's going on? What's my future? What's happening? We feel overwhelmed. And he says, I'm in control. He says, I'm working all things out for my purposes and for your good. It's interesting that in Acts, which Luke, of course, wrote in Acts chapter 2 and verse 23, it tells us this, that Peter is preaching, uh, and there in verse 23, he says this, You, you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death and nailed him to the cross. So man is responsible. You killed him. But, he says in verse 23, this man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. So there's human responsibility, but above that there is divine sovereignty. You did this, but God was bigger than your plans. And God used every situation and every evil machination of men for his great purpose. To have Jesus die on the cross for our sins. And so I want us to see something else, and it all kind of links together, really. In um, like chapter Luke 22 and verse 53, Jesus says this. He says in Luke 22, verse 53, that this is the hour of darkness. 
This is your hour when darkness reigns. This little scene, the most infamous trial in human history, is a time of darkness. It's an hour of darkness. Darkness is enveloping people in this scene. I don't know if you've ever been in a cave or something where there is no light, and you get to the point where you cannot, they turn the lights off, you cannot see anything. You can't see your hand, utterly enveloped in darkness. And we see in this scene that everybody gets enveloped in this darkness. We've seen already that there was fearful Peter, who in the darkness, in the courtyard, gave in uh, to fear. We've seen here the fearsome rulers, these religious leaders who are in darkness, wanting to have Jesus killed. We've seen the frivolous Herod, who is just mocking Jesus. We've seen feeble Pilate, who hasn't got the courage of his convictions. He wants to release Jesus. His conscience says that this is wrong. He should be upholding Roman law, which means that you don't convict someone who is politically innocent. And yet, he's afraid of the crowds, and he gives in, he's weak. And so we've seen fearsome rulers, fearful Peter, frivolous Herod, feeble Pilate, all getting sucked in to this darkness, to this vortex of evil. It's interesting just to note, by the way, that Pilate and um, Herod at this point become friends. They become allies. It's quite an interesting little verse, isn't it? In verse 12, it says that Pilate and uh, Herod became friends before that they had been enemies. It's quite interesting, isn't it? Jesus brings people together, sometimes for bad. People club together against him with an agenda that is against his same time Jesus also brings people together here we all are Jesus brings people together birds of a feather flock together but these two are like as thick as two thieves and they have kind of found a friendship in this situation they they've they've kind of come together I don't know why it's hard to tell exactly why but I think it's probably something to do with the fact that both of their consciences are, are really getting at them. They, they both know that they should release Jesus. They both know that they're doing the wrong thing. But, well, at least, at least Pilate's also doing the wrong thing. At least Herod's also doing the wrong thing. Kind of, you know, um, we can feel a bit better about ourselves if, you know, he's doing the same as me. That's what people do sometimes, isn't it? Kind of feel that they're doing something wrong, but, well, I've got other people that do it. We can all march together for our, for our thing, making me feel a bit better about what I'm doing. We, we can all uh, club together. We can be with, our, uh, with other people uh, to make us feel better about 
what we're doing. And that's perhaps what they're doing together here. Um, but actually, I think it's worth noting that friends can reflect our hearts and friends can direct our hearts. On the one hand, they can reflect our hearts. That um, we find people who kind of make us feel better about what we want to do already, and we find people similar to us because then, well, it's just comfortable. So we, we kind of will find friends who make us feel comfortable, whether that's Christian friends who, who will be a good influence and, and actually we feel strengthened and comforted by their friendship, or, or whether it's, it's people who, who don't challenge us about living for God and, in fact, make us feel comfortable about not really following God. And actually, we kind of find those friends because they're reflecting really what our heart is. Actually, what our heart is, we're not really a heart after Jesus. So we kind of end up with people who haven't got a heart for Jesus as well. And, and our, heart, our friendships can kind of reflect our hearts. On the other hand, there are times when our friendships can direct our hearts. Sometimes we just fall in with people and it's not a deliberate thing. It's not that we're kind of, it's reflecting our hearts. It's just we've fallen in with these people. And of course, we can have lots of different friends. There's nothing wrong with having non-Christian friends. I'm not saying that we shouldn't. But we can end up with people. We just kind of fall in with them. But if we're not careful, if we're not guarding our hearts, they can direct us down paths that are unhelpful. And they can bring a direction into our lives that is not good. We need to be careful. We need to have good friends. We need to be wise about the friends that we have. But here we have Pilate and Herod drawn into this vortex as well of evil. Everybody's getting sucked in to it. But there's one final group. What about the people? It's interesting how Luke uses that phrase for the first time here, the people. Not the crowds, but the people. And up until now... The people have been a buffer for Jesus against the ones who wanted to kill him. Do you remember how they had to uh, arrest Jesus at night because they were afraid of the people? Up until now, the people have protected Jesus because he's popular with them. And uh, he's one of their own and he could be the Messiah, messianic leader for us. And there's the, the Romans and so on or the, the people wanting to arrest him. But um, they are a protection for him. Back in chapter 23 and verse 2, we read there that the accusation was made that Jesus had perverted the people. Perverted the people into his way of thinking. And the accusation is, the rulers say, this Jesus, he's perverted the people. They're following him now and he's been, his minds, their minds have been twisted by him. He's been perverted by Jesus. But now we find that in this situation, there's a question. Are the people going to continue to stand with Jesus? And the reader's interest is piqued as we read through this. What are the people going to do? That's going to be the decisive moment now. Everyone else has been drawn in to the darkness. But what about the people? And we find that now even the people are drawn in 
and sucked in. The people are turned along with the rulers. They now are shouting for Jesus' crucifixion. Everybody has been sucked in. Fearful Peter, frivolous Herod, feeble Pilate, and now the febrile people have also been drawn in. Everybody's involved in the death of Jesus. There's no one righteous, not even one, says Paul in Romans. It was my sin that nailed him there. It's us. It's all of humanity who have nailed him to the cross. It's us. We, the people, did it. You might identify with different characters in this narrative, but they reflect us. Humankind were drawn in to this satanic circus this vortex of evil. And everybody in this passage has lost their minds. Everybody has gone insane. They've gone feral. Fact is fiction. Fiction is fact. It's darkness. No one can see the Son of God, who he is. And they're shouting for Barabbas to be released. They want a paschal pardon for Barabbas. Paschal meaning at the time of the Passover, and there's a tradition that someone could be pardoned at that time. And there's Barabbas. Now, the word Barabbas means son of the father. Barabbas, son of the father. But actually, Barabbas is guilty of insurrection and murder. And he goes free. Meantime, the true son of the father, though he is innocent, is condemned. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. See, Satan has overreached himself in this passage. Satan's scheme has, is going to go wrong. Satan thinks he's getting rid of Jesus, but God's plan is being fulfilled. He is greater than all the forces of darkness put together. He's working it all out. He is weaving these evil things into a tapestry for his glory. He's working all things out. That's this gospel. That's what we see in this passage, that Jesus is going to die for us, the innocent for the guilty. The one who had no sin is going to die for those who ridiculed him, for those who were blind to him, for those who were fearful and afraid to stand up for him and to believe in him, to those who were feeble and weak, and unable to listen to their consciences. To those who are just carried up in the crowd. He's going to die for all those people. He's going to take our sin. What an amazing gospel we have. That we, through this, might be set free. That we might go free. 
Surely, folks, this message is worth shouting about. Surely this is worth standing on a soapbox and shouting to everybody who will listen this great news that Jesus is Lord, that he breaks the power of sin, that he overcomes the darkness, that he brings people together into his church to belong to him, to find true friends in him. What a gospel. We should shout about this. We should tell people about this. We should invite people to come and find out about this without fear. If you think about those uh, people at Tyburn Gallows who are about to be executed, they realized that their time was up. Therefore, they didn't care what they said because, well, you know, I'm about to die anyway. Well, you know, we've got not that much time and uh, we've taken up our cross anyway. So why should we fear? Why don't we speak? Why don't we tell people this great news of what he has done? And we can receive it for ourselves and we can live in the good of it for ourselves before we then go and tell others the good news as well. So can we pray together? Lord God, we thank you. Thank you, Jesus, that you went through all of this for us. We thank you that you, you, faced, you faced these crowds, these people, all these different agendas, all these different motives, all this sin that was thrown at you. You took it all, Lord Jesus. Thank you you did that for us. Thank you that because of that, we can be completely forgiven, that we can literally walk free. What an amazing gospel. Thank you that we don't need to be condemned anymore. We don't need to feel guilty anymore. We're not under a sentence anymore. Though we deserve it, you've forgiven us if we put our trust in you. I just want to give an opportunity if there's anyone here who wants to put their faith in Christ for the first time, then if you would like to do that, you can just join in with me quietly in your heart this prayer that I'm going to pray right now. And you just pray it and God is listening to you as you pray it. Lord God, I thank you that you love me. You know everything about me. You know all my strengths. You also know my sin. I thank you, Lord, that I don't have to carry that sin anymore because you came to take it on the cross. Thank you that you can forgive me and I can walk free. And so right now I ask you, please forgive me. Forgive me for ridiculing you. Forgive me for not following you. Thank you that you're hearing my prayer right now and I commit myself to you. I want to surrender myself to your will. I want you to be Lord 
over my life. And so, Lord, I thank you that you've heard me now and I thank you that you're with me and I ask you to help me to go from here free and ready to follow you. In Jesus' name. And Lord, I do pray for anyone else here, for all of us, if we're feeling like we're in the storm, if we're feeling out of control, I pray for your peace. I pray that we'd know that you're in control. I pray that you'd help us to take hold of everything you've said to us today. We thank you for this wonderful gospel and for the friends that we can enjoy it with. In Jesus' name, amen.